Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Last week, I wove together a number of clips from various interviews I recorded over the years with some of the world's leading scholars relating to the authenticity of the four Gospels. On this episode, I'll be airing the second part of this conversation, and you'll be hearing from scholars such as Richard Bauckham, John Dixon, Peter Williams, Craig Blomberg, D.A. Carson, Lydia McGrew, and Daniel Wallace. To recap what we focused on last time, I'd like you to listen to this short clip from Cambridge New Testament scholar Peter Williams. When just in passing, you are told about the towns around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus went. He went up there. He went down there. All of these ups and downs work with where the land goes up and down. And if you're able to get that stuff right, it's a good indication that you actually come from the area you're writing a story about or that you've listened very, very carefully when people have told you about a place. Uh, And there aren't really any other options. And so I think the very fact that we get lots of the geography right is significant. Now, if you've been raised with the Bible and you've never really doubted the picture of Jesus, as we find in the gospel narratives, it's likely that you may never have thought about questions of this kind or even noticed some of these little details. But to give you an entirely different perspective, I'd like you to listen to part of a conversation I recorded with a friend of mine named Fikret Bocek. Fikret was raised as a Muslim in the country of Turkey, and in this exchange he discusses some of the issues he encountered when he began to read the Bible for himself for the first time. I wasn't reading to believe, honestly. I was reading to find problems. I was hoping to find some problems with the with the history, geography. As I went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and then moving on to Acts, I started seeing um, how Christianity grew and spread from Turkey, literally. I mean, from... Jerusalem coming to Turkey and Paul keeps coming back and all these places, you know, my backyard, all the names I recognize and Ephesus is 45 minutes south of us. And I was wondering why we didn't study these 
in our history classes. You know, we did study ancient history, and then we moved on to the Islamic history, and then the Seljuks and the Ottomans and the modern era and Christianity. We they don't go into that at all. So, I had read the Quran as a Muslim, and as I was reading the Quran, I was really interested in the vegetation, the rivers, the trees. And how long it would take from one city to another city on a, on a camel or on foot, and you know the Quran doesn't match.、Um, you know today that it's about a thousand kilometer distance, but they would say, and you know they started traveling, and the next day they were there. You can't do that without an airplane or a car.、Uh, even with a car, it would be pretty hard.、Huh. Or the Quran mentions that. You know, there's a river running through Mecca, or this type of tree, like olive trees. There are no olive trees ever grown in Mecca, or this vegetation and that vegetation. So, and I thought, well, you know, that's unbelievable. After reading the Quran before I read the Bible, I really lost respect for the Quran、um, because of the geographical problems in it.、Um, but as I was reading the Bible. I just said a ruler, so I was looking at which ways would Jesus have walked, and it would be, you know, this would be approximately about that much time, and this this is believable with its、um, mountains and the desert,、uh, and you know all the vegetation and the names, and they're there. I went to Israel several times, and everything matches. The result of Fikret's exploration is that he converted to the Christian faith, and even though he was arrested and persecuted on various occasions, he eventually became the pastor of a church in his home country of Turkey. You see, Fikret had become convinced that Christianity was true, and that the story of Jesus was grounded in actual, verifiable historical events. But what happens when the majority of the people we interact with? No longer think in historical terms or know how to process historical claims and arguments. That's a question that was recently posed by Dr. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker on the Undeceptions podcast. As an academic historian, I fear that our society is losing its historical literacy. This is in no small part because we live in what I term an ahistoric age. That is, in contemporary Western societies. Which are underpinned by the idea that life is about self-invention and fulfillment, we have largely ceased to think of ourselves as historical beings. The past has little to teach us. We are largely autonomous, self-creating individuals with no larger story. This may perhaps explain why it's so rare to find Christian evangelists encouraging prospective converts to read and examine the Bible closely. Looking for all kinds of historical and geographical details that can be corroborated from numerous other sources. No, what's much more common is to find Christianity promoted as a kind of therapy. But this try it you like it approach simply begs the question: Did this Jesus, who can change our lives, ever really live in the first place? Australian historian John Dixon puts it this way: Christians are just stuck with history, whether they like it or not.、Uh, every Christian is a historian. In that, our principal Texts, our sacred scriptures, are historical documents, 
and they make it clear that they are historical documents. So we have historical biographies in the case of the Gospels. We have a kind of history in the Book of Acts, and we have actual letters from human beings in in our epistles section of the New Testament that are very much like Governor Pliny's letters to various friends and to the emperors. So we are stuck with history. The events that we claim at the very heart of our faith, uh, being the life of Jesus, his teaching, his miracles, his death and resurrection, these are all allegedly historical events. So from that side, it's important. Regardless of whether a non-Christian asks any questions, Christians are stuck with history and always have been. People notice when you shift from saying, I believe God loves you, to I believe Jesus died under the fifth governor of Judea, they notice a pivot there. The first one is something they can't test. I mean, they may or may not feel that love and they may or may not be interested in that love of God, but they certainly can't test it. But as soon as you say Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, we've taken a step into the real world, we might say, and thoughtful uh, friends who don't believe are going to say, how do you know that? And uh, that's where history comes in as a useful uh, discipline for saying, here are some things we can know about the historical dimension of uh, the Christian faith. Do you think that another problem we face today, particularly with the younger generations, is that history itself is viewed with some level of suspicion? You know, the whole idea that since these things happened so long ago, who's to say what really happened? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And this is partly a function of the decline of the study of history in our school systems, because it now seems like a foreign, not even just a foreign country, but uh, maybe another planet. And so you might as well be doing sci-fi as doing ancient history. And that's a pivot in our culture uh, that has had an effect, because, of course, if we wound back 200 years ago, you all had to do history. Even 100 years ago, you, you all had to do history. And so people 100 years ago, the average sort of educated person 100 years ago, will have had a pretty good idea of Plato's Republic. They probably would have known a little about St. Augustine's view of the self. They certainly will have heard of Aquinas and his arguments for God. And that's just the average educated 20-year-old 100 years ago knew all that. They are completely foreign names now. Right. So two things seem to be going on at the same time. There, there is this sort of emphasis on the therapeutic that is everywhere in our culture. And so history just seems foreign to those questions. But the other is just an educational thing. We have stopped doing classical history in our countries to any real degree. And so it seems like another planet. It seems like Middle Earth. Speaking of Middle-earth, one of the primary ways that liberal New Testament scholars around the world have attempted to interpret the Gospels over the past hundred years or so is to argue that they were essentially rooted in stories that were handed down over time. So though there could have been a real historical Jesus, it was essentially impossible to access him through the Gospel narratives, since those texts contained so much legendary material. The study of that process came to be known as form criticism, and in the second edition of his book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Cambridge New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham argues that this entire approach has officially reached a dead end. 
Form criticism originated in the early 20th century, and it, it was a way of looking at the Gospels that came from a couple of very prominent German scholars of the time, Rudolf Bultmann and Martin de Balius. What they did was to compare the Gospels with folk literature, German fairy tales, stuff like that. Hansel and Gretel. Yes, indeed. So they said that um, the stories about Jesus would have been handed down orally by the early Christians within the early Christian communities. And they, they called it form criticism because they distinguished the different literary forms of the stories. The point was they thought they could trace how these stories developed over the course of their oral transmission from mouth to mouth, as it were, in the early centuries until they got put into the gospel. So their theory removes the eyewitnesses from the gospel writers by this long process of oral transmission. And it was very, very widely accepted, this general outline of, of the way the early gospel traditions were transmitted and reached the gospel writers, very widely accepted. Do you think that form criticism today still continues to govern the way most New Testament scholars think about the text, or are you beginning to see a change? I think that most New Testament scholars, I mean, if you think about it, if you've worked with a particular sort of paradigm for how you work with the Gospels for a long career, you're not going to abandon it in a hurry. And I think it's therefore very natural that if my argument gains ground, it will be among younger scholars. And one can say that that's happening. But I also think that although most older scholars, at any rate, pay lip service to form criticism, they actually make far less use of it than was done in the past. So I think there's a sense in which the real force of form criticism has waned, and some of their key points have been abandoned. But of course, if you abandon one paradigm, you've got to have another paradigm. And of course, the eyewitnesses contention is itself very controversial. So I think there's probably a reluctance to adopt this new paradigm, uh, which has all kinds of implications about the reliability of the Gospels. But you are saying, though, that the foundation upon which skeptical New Testament scholars like Bart Ehrman stand on is officially over and done. It just they don't realize that their foundation has crumbled. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, I, I think that is true. Yes. I mean, I think um, Bart Ehrman's a good example of a very traditional scholar in the sense that he just goes along with a major trend of 20th century gospel scholarship which was never, of course, the only trend, but it was a major trend and really doesn't question it. He just goes along with it and takes it for granted. I mean, there's a strong tendency, you see, if you're engaged in the study of a subject, New Testament scholars, I think, like to see the history of their study as a kind of progressive science, you know, in which each generation builds on the firm results of the previous generation, you know. So there's a strong tendency for people not actually to question the views that have become the consensus in the previous generation. The idea of supposing that some influential uh, development might have been mistaken is not something people take easily to, because it seems to contradict this idea of the discipline as a progressive science. But it's not a progressive science, you know, that's really not how it works. And it's entirely possible that serious mistakes have been made and now we know better. And we need always to be re-examining you know, the foundations of the consensus of the last generation. We can't just assume that everybody got it right.
Greg Blomberg, who is professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary in Colorado, agrees with Bauckham's approach and sees the New Testament Gospels as being rooted in eyewitness testimony. You're looking at people, whether you accept the traditional descriptions of authorship, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or if you take the approach that they were maybe 10 or 20 years later and written by disciples of those four individuals, you're still looking at first century dates, people who were no more than one person removed from an eyewitness of the life of Christ, astonishing time and position to be in by ancient standards in an oral culture where people were used to circulating sacred and cherished traditions very faithfully, often from memory and sometimes with a a certain flexibility in retelling less important parts of the story, but being faithful to the gist nonetheless. You have multiple witnesses, you have multiple accounts, you have all kinds of, at first glance, apparent discrepancies among those that I believe on closer inspection can uh, fit together as complementary and supplementary to each other and put these and other kinds of evidence together. And by the standards of the day, these books were astonishingly trustworthy. What really sticks in the mind is the gist of an event, you know, the sort of key elements of an event that make it memorable and explain what's happening and so forth. Um, Peripheral details might vary from one telling to another. And that's a good reason, I think, for not really being too bothered about the minor differences that you get between the Gospels when they're recounting the same event. I mean, an obvious example where where people do have problems, I think, sometimes is the differences in the accounts of the visit of the women to the empty tomb, and that they are rather different. And I think we may well have the memories of different individuals among that group of women in those four cases. There is this thing, what's his role socially? He is a teacher with 12 learners, 12 disciples. Um, Furthermore, one of his parables talks about the fact that he's raising up scribes for the new kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So they've got their job for however long they're his disciples, and that Mm -hmm. is to learn everything he says. And there's multiple ones of them. So the idea that they just didn't pay any attention, you sometimes see them walking down the road discussing his last saying. You know, so this is the sorts of thing that, that they would do. They would actually learn this. And if they're going out preaching sermons themselves in synagogues uh, or teaching, he teaches them content. When he teaches in synagogues, I don't think he used a fresh sermon every single time. So therefore, they get to hear the same talk again and again. I mean, I've given some talks, you know, 60 times similar, you know, with slight variations. I think when you crafted something as beautiful as the Beatitudes, you don't just use them once, mm-hmm. you know. What we call the Sermon on the Mount uh, is not actually called in the passage the Sermon on the Mount. It's that he went up the mountain and he taught his disciples. Right. It's the lesson on the Mount. Well, if you're teaching your disciples, You teach the Beatitudes. How do you teach the Beatitudes? You don't just say them once. You get them to say the Beatitudes back to you. You might say them multiple times. So rather than saying, oh, wow, we got this record of a 12-minute sermon that Jesus set up a mountain one time, you think, no, what it's saying is you've got all these people gathered and he spent all day and this was the curriculum he took them through, which we now have condensed. So it's presenting itself as the content of teaching. And then Matthew and Luke condense that differently yeah they're reporting the content of of teaching so they 
don't have to report exactly the same things, but there's a big overlap. When we look at the speech within the Gospels, whether it's Jesus' speech, John the Baptist's speech, other people's speech, we find those bits of the Gospels are closer statistically than the surrounding narrative. That's not the sort of thing you would expect if people are playing fast and loose with reporting what Jesus said. It's just not going to produce that pattern, which you can look at at the big numerical level. And it's not going to explain tiny little agreements between, say, John recording Jesus and Mark reporting Jesus. It just doesn't explain it like that. So that's where I'd want to say we've got a very good case that what we have in the Gospels comes from Jesus. The question is then, do people have any freedom with the wording? Well, yes because back then they didn't have speech marks like we have. The, quotation in, marks, you yeah. Know, quotation marks, they're, they're not, nothing like so common, and you can trace that. So they don't have quite the same rules. What I'm claiming is not that this is coming from Jesus by our modern conventions with speech marks, but by their conventions of what you would normally accept as true and accurate reporting. Few New Testament scholars doubt the authenticity of Paul's epistles. Because they're widely believed to have been written from the late 40s to the mid-60s of the first century, a number of scholars have argued that we can actually know a great deal about Jesus simply by paying attention to things Paul mentions in passing throughout his correspondence. So here we have a whole collection of letters from a figure writing in the 50s to communities that have existed for five to ten years before him who are all obviously aware of the events for the 20 years prior. Now, that's fascinating, especially as Paul's not the least bit interested in laying down the story of Jesus to his audience. Yeah, he's assuming they know certain things about him. These are letters to people who knew it all. Yeah. And we know they knew it all because Paul, in passing, mentions all sorts of things and will often say, let me remind you, or as I said when I was with you, and if you count up all the things Paul mentions to these churches that he founded years before, all the things he mentions that he's already told them, you end up with a pretty large list of stuff they knew about Jesus, the historical Jesus, including you know, just simple things like his name, that he was from the family line of David, that he had 12 disciples who were called the 12, a word or two about divorce about love of enemy, all these things Paul mentions from Jesus, even a little reference to the missionaries Jesus sent out who ought to um, be supported financially. And we could go on. I mean, that's a huge area of study. Yeah. What, what did Paul know about the historical Jesus? And people have in the past argued, oh, because he says so little about it, um, you know, he didn't know about a historical Jesus. It's historically tone deaf, if I may put it politely, because it's the very fact that he just throws away these things that he knows you know. Yeah. That makes this so important as evidence, yeah. as the tip of the iceberg for what uh, disciples had to know about the historical Jesus. There's lots and lots of the Jesus tradition within Paul's letters. Uh, I also think there's quite a lot of the Jesus tradition reflected in Matthew, which it shows up in the letter of James. Right. So Lots of Sermon on the Mount material. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think these are ways in which you can see things that Jesus said being widespread and being picked up. I mean, to my mind, the most important example of all of these is Paul's actual quotation of the Last Supper tradition right. that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Paul cites it back to the Corinthians, not as 
teaching them in that moment, but as reminding them of what he himself received and what he had passed on to them. And then gives an actual quotation of Jesus, which is proof positive that disciples in being converted, even in faraway Corinth, had to learn statements of Jesus and had to know, you know, uh, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he said, you know, this is my body. And yeah. the disciples actually knew that. Even pagan disciples had to know that. And then you turn over a, a few pages and there's that most famous creedal summary in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the earliest of all the summaries of the Christian faith. And Paul makes clear that he received it from others and passed it on to the Corinthians. And it says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised to life on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas and then to the twelve. And that's the end of the creed. But it's a clear four-line summary of the passion narrative. And this isn't a disputed fact, even in radically liberal scholarship, right? Well, beyond liberal, even sort of atheistic and agnostic right? scholars like Gerd Ludemann, mm -hmm. Robert Funk, will say that this goes back to within a few years of the events, because the language is so clear that Paul received this when he became a disciple. The technical language that Paul uses there is the same language we know philosophers used for passing on philosophical material, and the same language Josephus uses of what Pharisees did with their oral traditions. This is the language Paul uses for he received, he passed on. Now, we know when Paul received his material. We know when he was converted. And so he either got this material instantly upon his conversion, which would take us to maybe 31, 32 in Damascus, or you could say he got it in 33, 34, when, according to his own testimony, he was in Jerusalem with Peter and James. Yeah, I think that's more likely. So I'm, I'm happy saying within about three or four years of the events themselves, Paul received this creedal tradition. And the fact that it's a creed tells you that the narrative was much earlier. Right. And because in order for something to be put into a creed, it has to be a deliberate summary of larger blocks of material. That is the nature of uh, a creed. So when you look at that creed, it says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the summary line that you're meant to know. Now, the thing is, what's it a summary of? It is clearly a summary of his messianic status. It's Christ who died. It's clearly a, a mnemonic summary of some kind of death account, right? So he died. So they must have known how he died and some sort of conditions around that. Um, it's already theologically interpreted. Right. It's on behalf of sins, using sacrificial Jewish language, probably out of Isaiah 53. It's a bit of research into that. And what's more, it's in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, which means disciples who learnt that one line had to know scriptures that pointed to an atoning death on behalf of others. Right. Um, the, the way these creeds worked is that because they were summaries of larger blocks of material, they were important tools for teachers to be able to say which scriptures. And as disciples meant to know that. And that's just the first line. And then when you go that he was buried, makes perfectly clear they knew a narrative about the burial. And then he was raised and then he appeared to Kephas and then to the 12. Well, actually, um, the Gospels also have an appearance to Peter and appearance to the lot of them. So there's a genuine historical memory here. Lydia McGrew is the author of Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. And on one occasion, I asked her if she was convinced that 1 Corinthians 15 contained an early Christian creed. 
In one sense, yeah. I mean, I think it's obviously condensed. It's a condensed version. It may have been something that they taught to people. Uh, I don't necessarily think that it's got any priority over the gospel accounts. Some people would emphasize it as somehow being, you know, more reliable or earlier or something. But I, I do think it's a condensed version that may have been taught to catechumens, for example, when preparing them for baptism or for entry into the Christian body. But if this creed really does go back to the early 30s, then why should there be a difference between its list of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection as compared with what we find in the Gospels? For example, in the Gospels, women are the first to discover the empty tomb, and Mary Magdalene is the first to see the risen Jesus. So if this is really the case, why doesn't her name appear in the list of witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, I think they would want something that would be forceful for their catechumens from all different cultures. Uh, And in Jewish law, uh, women's testimony counted for less than men's did. Uh, Greek, Roman culture, none of them had, I'm sorry to say, a very high view of the value of female testimony. And so it would make sense that if you're going to boil it down, you're going to teach it to people, you're going to boil it down to the more prestigious disciples. With a few exceptions, most New Testament scholars are in agreement that John is the latest of all the four Gospels. And partly as a result of this, it's also viewed by many as the least historically reliable. In other words, because it's so late, many scholars over the past century or more came to think that its picture of Jesus told us more about what Christians in the late first century believed, more than what Jesus in the early part of that century actually said or did. But as we've seen, The more we learn about Jewish life and culture of this time and place, the more we've been able to corroborate all kinds of little details recorded in all four of our Gospels, which of course lends to their credibility. If I get to know you and little bits and pieces of what you say turn out to be accurate, then I'm going to build up a general picture of you as a trustworthy person. And so when you tell me something that I can't verify, I've got the bank of trustworthiness already uh, to draw on, and I'm going to trust you. And I think that point about trusting a witness is so important, because if we look at John and we look at all of these factual things scattered throughout, that should give us a sense that John is truthful. So in that indirect way, our discoveries in archaeology, undesigned coincidences in other passages, and so forth, the point is, this confirms John's historical intention and his intention to present himself to his readers as historical, which is often questioned by scholarship. I sometimes say John is treated as the problem child of the Gospels. That should absolutely not be the case. He should instead be treated as sort of the star pupil because he's so excellent in all of these ways. John has more locations that are mentioned in any other single Gospel. He has more references to the geography and the lay of the land and to key people, especially uh, surrounding Jesus' passion, death and resurrection, which where they can be tested all match up very closely with what we know of from first century Israel that fit in with that conviction. John is very precise about topography. 
It's a very striking feature of the gospel if you start looking out for it. You always know more or less where Jesus is. You often know precisely where Jesus is. He's not just there at the temple, but he's there by the sheep gate with the place of five porticos called Bethesda. Exactly. Or he's in Solomon's portico in the temple, or he's in the temple treasury, and so on. You know, the, especially the Jerusalem locations are very specifically noted. And again, John is precise about chronology because he has this series of Jewish feasts in the temple. They mark out, as it were, the period of Jesus' ministry, and everything else is dated in relation to them. So you always know within a few months, and often more precisely, exactly at what point in the story you are. So I think there are features of John that ancient readers would have found making a claim to be historical literature, not a kind of theology dressed up as a story or, you know, various other ways in which modern scholars have tried to explain it. So I think, I think it explains quite a lot of how the, the work is structured and some of this, this language. There's a lot of language of witness and testimony scattered through the gospel. Um, and of course, the last witness is the beloved disciple himself, the author of the gospel, who in, in the very last uh, couple of verses of the gospel says that he's the disciple who's witnessed these things. And so in a sense, he's the key witness because all the other witnesses we have in his book. So he's the witness who, as it were, gives us all the other witnesses in literary form. So many scholars have thought, for various reasons, this cannot be written by an eyewitness. And so they've tended to say that, you know, the last couple of verses of the gospel don't really mean what they say. Uh, that somehow the eyewitness testimony is, you know, got way back behind a long process that produced the gospel. But I think it says rather clearly that it's the disciple who wrote these things. And there's a verse in, in the Last Supper discourses of Jesus where he refers to the disciples as witnesses. And he says, you are my witnesses because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, the beloved disciple makes a big thing of his own witness to Jesus. Um, it would be rather odd if he has Jesus saying that and he could not, as it were, include himself in those disciples who had been there from the beginning. So I think there's a good case for saying that that disciple who's anonymous at the beginning is, is in fact the beloved disciple. John's Gospel is the last one written, but not all. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. One thinks, for example, of John A.T. Robinson. He wrote a couple of learned books to prove that John's Gospel was written before A.D. 70, before the fall of Jerusalem. So here you find somebody who is on the conservative end of biblical scholarship so far as introductory matters are concerned, date, and all of that. But on the far left end, so far as the theology issues are concerned. I do myself think it's the latest of the four. That doesn't, of course, mean that he wrote the gospel all at the end of his life when he was a doddery old man. I mean, he probably wrote the gospel over a long period, and it's clearly the result of a whole lot of reflection and thinking about the events he'd experienced. I tend to think it was written later on the basis of my interpretation of the patristic evidence, but I think for all that it includes, it could have been written before the fall of Jerusalem. That is to say, the internal evidence is consistent with an earlier date and was certainly written by someone highly familiar with Jerusalem before the fall. I also think that all this specificity completely destroys any claim that John is of a 
partially non-historical or wholly non-historical genre. And I disagree with that. I think John gives clear indications over and over again of his historical genre. I agree that the absence of any reference to uh, the fall of Jerusalem is hugely important. I think it's a a very significant argument when it comes to uh, dating a lot of the epistles. When it comes to the Gospels, it could be significant, but when the little bit of external tradition that we do have puts John at a later date, I don't find that kind of argument from silence uh, enough necessarily to overthrow what was said. Do you think that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, or Luke were written before 70 AD? I do. Where would you place them, like, just a rough sketch? I am still convinced by the uh, once common view that the book of Acts ends as abruptly as it does, because uh, Luke didn't have any subsequent information to write about Paul's imprisonment and house arrest in Rome, and if that is the reason for the end of the book of Acts, then we can't date it any later than 62. Um, It makes sense that the gospel was written before the book of Acts, even if the two were done almost back to back. Um, I am convinced that Luke used the gospel of Mark, so that requires us to push Mark back. Matthew, I think, used Mark, and as to how much later he wrote, there's not much else to say except by the same arguments that John A.T. Robinson made about predictions. I think Matthew is the one author who has the clearest references, but not in any way written as if they were after the fact. There, I think Robinson makes good sense, and this is uh, sometime before 70. Do the majority of New Testament scholars put the Gospels late? Well, it all depends as who, who you define as a New Testament scholar. Certainly, there are as a group of people who would define the main scholars as giving a late date. But then it, a lot depends on who you class as an expert. We do know that scholars, as people generally, have a certain herd mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and scholars tend to be swayed by the views of others around them. So the question is, what views might they have if they had no one around them to please or anything like that? My concern is, what's the quality of material in the Gospels? Yeah, this is eyewitness material. And whenever you date the Gospels, this is first generation material. This is material that's come from close to the events, not from far away. Otherwise, you wouldn't get this consistent quality across it. I was recently struck by a comment that I found in a recently rediscovered commentary by uh, J.B. Lightfoot. Mm -hmm. In this newly discovered commentary of the fourth gospel, at one point he actually stops as he's thinking about the importance of the internal evidence. And he says, this is a narrative of a person who is an eyewitness of the events he relates and who writes not a half century later, but within a very few years of the occurrence. You may disagree with his uh, line about the timing, but he's convinced that, like you said, that this is an eyewitness Mm -hmm. and that sort of just hits him at one point and that he's convinced that this isn't a story that's evolved over a long period of time. Yeah, so I think you have that with John's gospel where you're presented with a choice. I mean, either this person is claiming all sorts of things which he did not see and trying to pass them off as if he did or he saw them. But what you can't do is have some view that it's a, benign untruth. I mean, you know, it, it just doesn't allow you that option. Right. So it, it really is quite dastardly if, he, if he's claiming to have seen all these miracles and they didn't take place. So I, I think that's where 
the simplest explanation for me is is this is an eyewitness. John's Gospel has a lot more geographical uh, information to it that has been found to be uh, pretty reliable than scholars used to think. That's New Testament scholar Daniel Wallace, who has argued that a close study of the grammar of John 5.2 actually suggests that the fourth gospel may have been written before the Jewish war. In this particular passage, what he speaks about is the pool of Bethesda or Bethzatha, and uh, he speaks about it as having five roofed colonnades. Now, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that it actually was two pools, and these uh, colonnades or stoa were around the uh, perimeter, and then there was one that divided it. So you could call it a single pool with five colonnades or a double pool or two pools if you want. So there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool that suggests that once you get to Jerusalem, you get to the Sheep Gate, which is known as the Sheep Gate, and you'll find this pool. Now, you also say that in addition to the geographical precision that we find here at the beginning of John 5, there also appear to be some temporal indicators that reveal something about the narrator's point in time. Can you walk our listeners through this point? The key thing that I noticed was in uh, verse 2, when the author says, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, uh, the uh, is there uh, speaks about the pool. And uh, he goes on and says that it has five porticos using the present participle. That implies that both the pool and the porticos were standing when the author wrote this. I think it's significant that on first reading, and I think uh, on second and third and fourth reading, it looks as if the author is saying this pool still stands and the colonnades still stand. So it seems to me that this is just a really awkward way to describe the area if it's already been destroyed by the Romans, which happened in 70 AD, just as it would be awkward for me to say today that there is this beautiful place in New York called the World Trade Center that has these two amazing twin towers. Uh, You are quite correct. And I think that's a good illustration to use here. Now, so I recently discussed your view with two of your colleagues, D.A. Carson and Craig Blomberg, and they argued that though your view grammatically is permissible, it's far from certain. Here's a short clip of their responses. You can't prove that John is talking about the present time because he's using what is grammatically the present tense. So because they're often aligned, as I said in the commentary, it's possible that it's present referring, but it's far from certain. The reason why you have such accurate descriptions of historical details is because you have an author who was there and did see them. I don't think that John's Gospel was written in AD 120 or anything like that. My own suspicion is something in the vicinity of 80 to 85. Well, Dan is a good friend, and I respect his understanding of Greek very highly. The counter to that is that in all of the Gospels, but particularly in Mark and John, you have a frequent use of what is called the historic present tense, so that we could see, uh, oh, 50 times in the Gospel of Mark alone, a statement where you're going along in the past tense, and all of a sudden it says, Jesus says, or people see, or so-and-so enters, which makes it that much more vivid. Now, Dan counters, he doesn't find that the simple verb to be uses the historic present all that much. So there are the arguments. So what's your reaction? Well, I, I have such great respect for both Craig and Don that it's difficult for me to 
respond other than with great admiration and some critiques. Um, Don said that uh, you can't prove this because of the present tense. And here's how I would argue about exegesis and theology. It's not a matter of whether you can prove something or not, because when we're dealing with the residue of historical materials that have come down to us, we can argue on the basis of probability. I never said in my article that was published in 1990 in the Vatican's official scholarly journal, Biblica, I never said that this is absolute proof. What I did say was that there are no other historical presence in the entire New Testament in which the verb to be is used as a historical present. And we have 451 of them. Therefore, the overwhelming odds that this is not a historical present is pretty strong. Craig Blomberg actually misquoted me when he said that I argued that the to be verb is not used as a historical present all that much. My argument is that in the New Testament, it is never used that way. I can get into the issues of the historical present and how it's used, but the point is that it's action that has taken place in the past as though it is present. And uh, so it's a, it's a vivid use, but the key here is an act in the past. And verbs of state, like to be, to maintain, to rest, these are not verbs of action. There was a, a scholar who, uh, over 100 years ago, listed all the historical presence. So I went through his entire list. He had no awareness of uh, the current debates that kind of got started with J.A.T. Robinson's redating the New Testament in the 1970s, uh, where he argued that all the books of the New Testament should be dated prior to 70. And so here I'm looking at this older scholar, long before Robinson wrote this, and he lists all the historical presence. And as I was working on my great grammar, I noticed that not a single verb of state was ever used. And so I have to ask the question, what would the Hellenistic Greek reader expect this to mean in this passage? The Greek reader would think there really is, in Jerusalem, this pool. And so you're saying that you haven't found that Greek verb to be used as a historical present anywhere in the New Testament or in other Greek texts as well, right? So far, that's correct. And in light of the evidence so far, I would say... Indeed, what is far more probable is that the author is speaking as though the pool exists at that time. And so that's an argument from the evidence, not from theory. I am not at all committed to a pre-70 date for John's Gospel. I think there's some very significant evidence for it that simply has not been as carefully considered as I would like to see. Now, there's another interesting passage that I discussed with Daniel Wallace. In John 21, 18, Jesus tells Peter, quote, When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. Then in verse 19, the narrator steps in and says, This he said in order to signify the kind of death he will glorify God. Now, though this isn't easy to see in many of our English translations, it's clear in the original Greek that John uses the future tense when he refers to Peter's death. And since this comment is being made by the narrator himself, it seems plausible to suggest that at the time of writing, Peter's death was still yet future. 
and since most scholars place Peter's martyrdom between 64 and 67 AD, I asked Daniel Wallace if he thought this was another good argument for dating John's gospel before the Jewish war. I think that's correct. I think that uh, although this is a parenthetical note, it's still the narrator saying that this is the kind of death in which Peter will glorify God. And I think there's a potential connection between this passage and actually Second Peter. In uh, chapter 1, we have uh, verses 12 through 15, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir up you by way of this reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. I think there's a great plausibility that what Peter is actually doing is referring to this very passage in John 21. It's the only other place in the New Testament that we have a prophecy about how he's going to die. And what, what date do you give for Second Peter? Well, I put it at about 65 to 67. Now, I did that completely independently of John's Gospel. Well, folks, I hope you've enjoyed these two episodes as I've been airing selections from my conversations with respected authors and scholars from all over the world concerning the portrait of Jesus that we find in the New Testament Gospels. Folks, as always, if you would like to study these things in more detail, be sure to visit the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, consider putting a little something in the tip jar or upgrading to a paid subscription through Substack. Also, be sure to join me again next time as I take a deep dive into the true location of Golgotha, with special guest Dr. David Roll. That's next time on the Humble Skeptic Podcast.